we talked about our continued demonstration as a culture uh, of our struggle to be able to have discourse on hard subjects, um, of the way we sort of drew up lines around that. And we talked about how James was really setting up a design for how you and I are to do community together, to do life together, where we don't all think the same thing, and that that's not a weakness, that that's actually a strength. Because we have a unity, as he wrote about in Jesus. And therefore, in this culture of kind of continuing to throw sound bites over social media at each other, which everyone says is not intended to bash people over the head, but it does, we um, can be an alternative kind of community. A community that, as we talked about last week, learns to speak and prayerfully consider, I mean, to listen and prayerfully consider before speaking. A kind of community where we can grow rather than just be told we're right on what we already think. And that's really hard. That's a challenge. This week has been a historic week in our country. No matter what your feelings are on some of the issues, it is a historic week in our country. We saw things, and in our world, we saw things like the Pope weighing in on ecology and the connection between faith and the environment and our stewardship of the world, and it created some controversy around that. But we waded into that conversation, and it created some ripple effects. We saw the Supreme Court make a decision about Obamacare and the future of health care in this country that is significant. We saw the Supreme Court again on Friday issue a ruling about marriage and marriage equality, that is going to shape the direction of this country and where we're headed. We saw on Friday the memorial service of those nine victims from Mother Emanuel Church and, uh, and specifically the pastor in a very moving ceremony. We saw terrorism that took place this week in different corners around the globe and on different continents that brought about unspeakable evil and violence. This was a huge week. We're going to have all of those in our mind as we look at the Scripture today. Unlike last week, we're not going to specifically look at any one of them in particular. But we are going to talk about what it means to be a kind of community that lives in this world and that continues to grow together rather than just an insistence on what we already think to be right. We're going to continue to talk about how James wants to form and shape that community, and all of us are going to have these things in our minds and in the background as we do talk about it, as we should, okay? So let's open with a prayer. Lord, we ask that in all of this, you would be with us, leading and guiding us so that we might grow into the people that you intend for us to be. We pray that your word would shape and mold us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're looking at the second half of James chapter 2 today, starting in verse 14. This is what it says. What is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified 
by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Okay. So we're going to continue to talk about how God is shaping and forming us in the kind of community through this scripture that we're called to be, the kind of community where we can continue to grow, and how we do that, how we form that, the nuts and bolts of it. I'm going to tell you a story to start off, and I want to say up front, this is not a story I'm proud of. It's not a story that I'm condoning. It's not a story that I'm lifting up and saying you should be like this. It's more of a confessional kind of story that I hope in the end, despite the fact that it is not my proudest moment to share with you, will enlighten a point that we're trying to make. And if it doesn't, it's an entertaining story that gives you ammunition on me in all different kinds of ways that you can use. The story is about my freshman year in college. It's the end of my freshman year. There are already parents going, be careful about this. It's the end of my freshman year in college, and it was actually while I was pledging as a member of Kappa Sigma fraternity at Davidson College. Now, Davidson worked a little different than some other schools. Davidson's where I went to school. It's a small school in a small town. Uh, most guys at that point were in fraternities, so it was not unusual to join. Um, there were like six fraternities. Uh, they all had to be open. They had open parties. I had great friends. There. there weren't like the rivalries that you often see in like different fraternities and stuff. But I was in Kappa Sigma, which is sort of the work hard, play hard fraternity. And I was in the midst of pledging towards the end of my freshman year, which is the process of things you have to go through and do to become a part of the fraternity. And one day towards the end of pledging and towards the end of my freshman year, one of my best friends and I got a phone call and we were summoned to the apartment of one of the officers of our fraternity. Now, this normally meant you were going to have to do something that you didn't want to do, but we went there. Uh, my friend, my, one of my best friends, his name is Jamie White. He's a, an attorney in Baltimore now. And we show up at this guy's apartment, and he says, here's what you're going to do. You guys are going to have to attend the final student government meeting of the year. And we were like, are there, are there any, like, requirements outside of that? Do we have to like dress a certain way? Like what, what is the, and he's like, no, you have to go. He goes, and you have to be prepared for it. You need to know it's the most boring meeting you will ever sit through in your life. Because at the final student government meeting, every organization on campus, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them, have to submit a written report as to what's happened this year. They have to all show up with representatives. All the representatives have to give a verbal report of what's gone on this year, as well as a verbal report of what they're planning on doing the next year. He said, it's the most incredibly boring three hours you're going to spend in your life because no one wants to be there, but their report's really important. I know none of you have been through meetings like that, where it's like, let's speed this up, but my thing's really important, so I'm going to talk longer about my thing. And he said, you guys have to submit a written report. You have to make the verbal report there. And your essential assignment is to not get us in trouble. 
So Jamie wrote the written report, and the agreement was I would do the verbal report. And this was before the days of smartphones, because I'm old. So normally what you would do in a meeting like that is just have your smartphone underneath the table, and I know you do this in sermons too, I've seen you, and that you sit there and you're checking like ESPN. I know you say you're reading the scripture passage, but I know really that you're often on CNN or, or, or ESPN and you're kind of looking at it. We didn't have that, so you actually just had to pay attention, right, to what's going on. And it was unbelievably boring. It was, it was so dull as each group reported in of what they were doing. The dean of students up front, he fell asleep, you know, as part of during the report at one point. But this is what, you know, it's what institutions, how we've always done it, so we got to keep doing it this way even though no one wants to. And Jamie looked at me in the middle of the meeting and whispered, he goes, Thomas. I said, what? He goes, I know where we need to get involved next year. I said, what? He goes, I know where we need to get involved next year. We need to join the chapel committee. Now, you got to understand, I know you all know me as a pastor. I was not a Christian at this point. I didn't know there was a chapel committee. I had never thought about going to church in college. My, my, my college was actually affiliated with the Presbyterian Church. I didn't even know that until after I graduated and went to seminary. I talked with my friends. None of them knew that it was affiliated with this. So every, I don't know what that list means when it comes to a Presbyterian affiliated. None of us knew. But So it was like weird to have him say, we should join the chapel committee. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He goes, we should join the chapel committee. He goes, look at what they do. So I read through the list of what their plans were for next year. I didn't see anything remarkable in that. I'm like, what? what? Stop. I said, you're being, you're being weird. And he goes, no, seriously, look at the first thing that they do. Now, the first thing that the chapel committee was planning to do next year was that they were the only group with permission to show up before freshman orientation to help the freshmen move into their dorms and to help in their orientation to the school. <laughs> I told you I'm not setting this up saying you should do this. I'm not proud of this moment. I still didn't get it. And I was like, some of you right now are going, what's so funny? I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, we've got a week's jump on meeting freshman girls before the other sophomore juniors and seniors show up. I said, Jamie, you are a man of brilliance. <laughs> I totally agree with you that we need to join the chapel committee. And so this is a true story. So at the end of the meeting, we went up to these people on the chapel committee. It's a small little group, and we didn't know any of them. And we were like, hi, and here's who we are. And we're like, we want to join the chapel committee. And they're like, really? We're like, yes, we feel Jesus wants us to serve next year. <laughs> Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. We are ready to serve. And they said, fine. Well, there's an organizational meeting next week before people depart for the summer. We went. They let us come and they gave us the little free pass you had to have to show up early on campus. And so we went through the whole summer and showed up for duty with the chapel committee the day before freshman orientation. We had a meeting with the chaplain. We had no idea who he was. We got to meet him that night. And they said, now listen, next morning, orientation, freshmen start moving at eight o'clock. You all need to be here by 7.30. First come, first get to decide where you're gonna go and we'll divide up and serve. And we said, yes, we will. Jamie and I were late for every class in college, every class. We were there 45 minutes early for this one. We were the first two people there. There are two girls' dorms at Davidson uh, at the time. It's now mostly co-ed, but, um, but Jamie volunteered as the first volunteer to take one of those dorms and to serve there. I volunteered to take the second dorm and to serve there. We spent the entire day in service, 
We were working, we carried bags, we met people. We, uh, they tried to say, you know, do you wanna rotate dorms? No, we don't. This is where God is calling us to serve. They, um, they said, you know, do you wanna take a break for lunch? It was like, did Jesus have lunch? No, there were, there were times we are so committed and it was a very successful day in both of our eyes. That night, the chaplain looked at us and said, guys, this is amazing. We are so excited. You guys are here on the chapel committee. And this is the really horrible part, which we haven't gotten to yet. We looked at him and said, you know, we're sorry. We're actually not going to be able to serve on the chapel committee any longer because of unforeseen. I know it's a horrible story. It is. And there's no like silver lining that's going to come out of it. This is my Christian legacy at my alma mater right there. If the chaplain walked into this room right now, he would tell all of you to run. He was like, do not listen to, and maybe you should. Like, don't listen to anything this person's saying. Jesus changes lives, right? As we were quitting, he said something to me. He said, you know, if you want to figure out what God's calling you to do with your life, you're going to need a group like this. Now, at the time, that meant nothing to me. Because I didn't, wasn't thinking about what does God want me to do with my life. My outlook was, I want to be happy. I want other people to be happy. And I just want to be kind of really nice and, and a good person. Which is a fairly shallow way to go through life. But because what is happiness? How do you do that? I mean, you know, it just it doesn't work that way. But those words stuck with me, even though my actions didn't in any way change that this individual would have known. In the scripture passage today, James is talking about that need, the need of community in figuring out what we're supposed to do. What he's saying here is that you and I are supposed to be people who live out our faith in action. We're called to be people who are not just nice, we're not just loving. We're not just supposed to be the super nice people that do things in the world. That is not what he is calling us to do. What he's saying is, is that you and I are people who are always in action supposed to be responding to God's grace in our lives. That God, and, and I think this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was talking about in the cost of discipleship. He said one of the great worries of the church today is what he called cheap grace, which is that there's no real claim of God on my life as to what I'm going to do. God just sort of loves me and wants me to be happy and wants me to be a good person. That is not what it is because that has no claim on how we live. What James is saying is that if we understand that we are broken people, broken people living in a broken world, and God's response to that is that God loves us in unbelievable ways and sent his son, then that compels us in action to go out into the world and to seek to love the world in places of great pain and hurt and brokenness as well. It's stronger than just go be a nice person. It's God has loved you right where you are. How can you do anything different but to go into the world and do the same thing with other people? It's a much more deeply rooted sense of existence than that. Now, what we're going to see up here is that there's actually three parts in this scripture where James gives specific examples of what faith and action should look like, where it's not just theoretical, it's not just in conversation, it's not just locked in committee, but that where we are actually living out faith. This is not an all-inclusive list of what living faith out is, but it's a pretty good start. He gives three examples in these 12 verses. The first one he says is that we are called to be people who in action are helping the poor. 
What he says is that if we're people that just sit there and say, you know, good luck, we, we hope that you get well fed and we hope that you're able to stay warm and then move on with our life, he says you're not following, you're not understanding what Jesus has really done in your life. It compels us to do more. We've been over the month of June having a, a drive from Manos to Cristo, a back-to-school drive. We've been doing a canned food drive that Mayor Adler talked to us about a need at the Capital Area Food Bank. We have responded in unbelievable ways. You have responded in extravagantly generous ways, and we're grateful to you for that. We don't do it to just be nice. We do it because as God has loved us in our need, we see need in the world, and we then go and respond in those places of poverty and brokenness and hurt and injustice where we can go in and get involved. That's what James is saying. It's not just like, hey, we hope you'll do this. It's we do this because this is what God's done for us. We live it out. He says, secondly, that we're supposed to step out boldly in faith. And the example he uses there is Abraham where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac, at least he's called to. He doesn't do it in the end. God kind of rescues him from that. But it is about that sometimes God is going to ask you to do things that are illogical and really hard and really scary. James is saying, and we talked about this last fall, that God's calling all of us to a water-walking existence. God is calling all of us at times to step out of the boat. All of us. And that the worst kind of existence is one, as, as Thoreau talked about, is where people live lives of quiet desperation and in the end of their lives come to realize they had never truly lived. We just play it safe all the time. That he's saying, though, there are going to be times that we're going to step out boldly in faith. And third, he mentions Rahab. This is the third example he gives and says that we're to reach out to others in need. Now, Rahab was a prostitute, but it talks about how as she was uh, someone who gave shelter to spies from God's people, messengers is what the translation says, spies is actually a better term, who had gone into this foreign land and their lives were in danger, and she sacrifices, actually risks her own life to care for other people. Those are three examples that he gives, and I think there are three really good places to start. How do we help the poor? How do we step out boldly in faith? How do we reach out to others in need? Now, we're going to quickly talk about these in two sort of different ways, all right? The first way is what I call the Peter Fisher way, okay? Peter Fisher was one of my favorite people at the church that I served in Atlanta before coming here. Peter is an attorney. He uh, now is in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's a great guy. I used to talk to him at lunch and say, Peter, you know, I'm not paying you by the minute here. You can actually, like, give me more than six words. He was just very direct, very kind of didn't mind confrontation at all. Uh, he wasn't Southern. And, uh, you know, and would just kind of be honest and tell you what he thought. And we were at lunch one day, and I was doing my uh, philosophy mind. Besides being a defunct member of the chapel committee in college, I was a political philosophy major as well. And so some of what I can do, I got to hear these words from James because sometimes I can get, just get locked into what is truth and what is real and what are we supposed to do? And we just kind of wander in circles all the time, not making any decisions. And I was talking to Peter at lunch about this passage from James. What does faith in action look like? I said, sometimes it's so hard to know. And Peter goes, yeah, you know, that's a cop-out. I was like, what? And he goes, I mean, I rarely over lunch, and maybe I need this more in my life, have someone look at me and go, you're just copping out. And, and then just keeps eating. Like, didn't even explain that. He's just like, yep, you're just copping out. He goes, it's not true. He goes, most of what God wants us to do is not some mystery we've got to study for a long time. You know, when it comes to helping the poor, it's not one of those things we have to sit there and go, does God really want that? I don't know. What do you think? How do you interpret this? It's like, yes, it's very, very clear. And what Peter said is, most of the time, it's just, we understand what God wants us to do. We just don't want to do it. He goes, we don't want it to, like, that, that giving to the poor might impact our lifestyle and where we can go on vacation. 
And, and so we just sort of don't want to listen to that. It's not that it's a mystery what God wants. We just kind of don't want to do it. Now, I felt very guilty because I was going to the beach the next week. And you're like, yeah, that's true. Uh, but, you know, what he said, he talked about reaching out to others in need. He said, it's not a mystery that God wants us to pay attention to relationships and value relationships above just about anything else in a society that values productivity over relationships so much of the time. Asking the question, what do you do? But that's what causes us to go on our smartphones rather than look at someone across the table and have a conversation. Because we know that we're called to value the person sitting across from us and pay attention and be fully present. We just choose not to a lot of the time. It's not mysterious. So I kind of put some of these in the Peter Fisher category. As we talk about this today, or as you think, go through the book of James, there are going to be moments where you should be challenged. You probably, many of you sitting here, can hear that list and go, I know I should be doing that. It's not a mystery. It's like, how do I do that? I know God's calling me to step out more. I know God's calling me to be more generous. I know God's calling me to use my time and pay attention to other people. I know where God is calling me to do this crazy thing in faith, and I'm scared to do it, and so I'm just sitting there analyzing it and analyzing it and analyzing it and analyzing it. But I need to go step out and do this. We all have those places. What I call the, the, the Peter Fisher categories, the obvious things we're supposed to do. James wants to challenge us and say, you need to do it. You need to respond. You need to trust God. Just as God's grace is not cheap, it was costly, God will will lead you in a response and guide your steps. I want you to pay attention to those things. But secondly, there's another category. That's the Peter Fisher, the obvious we need to do these things. The political philosophy part of my brain really wants to hold on to the fact that sometimes it's really hard to know. What is God's will? You ever struggle with that? I want to be faithful. I'm just not quite sure what that is. I'm not quite sure what God wants me to do. I mean, that can come around in conversations about how do I set boundaries with people in my family or people with friends that is challenging or hard. That's, a, that's not an easy question. How does God want me to honor my parents or my, my, to raise my children? That, those, are, those are not just like black and white checking the box questions all the time. What does it mean to deal with someone whom you love that's struggling with addiction or depression? How do you deal or anxiety in those situations? I mean, it's hard at times to know, how do I respond? I want to put my faith in action. What does that look like? I'm convinced in some of the things that are happening in our country right now, that there are a number of people, even with the rulings, who are going, I don't quite know what this means. I mean, I I, I want to investigate it. I want to ask some questions about this, but there's kind of so much talking on both sides that is it okay for us to be able to ask questions and say, I don't really know right now? How do I think about this? How do I get formed in this? There's the Peter Fisher category of this is right and we've got to do it, but we as a church also need to be insistent on being okay with the process of discernment and wrestling when it's not clear what God wants us to do. And that chaplain at Davidson had it right. You don't figure that those hard things out by yourself. You figure it out in community. You figure it out with people. I am so excited that John Wasson is getting started here to be working on discipleship because at some level, I feel like we've been operating with one arm tied behind our back. It's not that there's not great things going on here, but someone who can come in and with our staff perspective and with our lay leadership, then John's our new associate pastor for discipleship or director of discipleship until he gets ordained. He's an associate pastor for discipleship. He's coming on board to give leadership for this. Okay of how we as a church that is a large church and a church that's growing, 
we need to become ultra-focused on those pockets of community where people can say, how do I pray about this? How do I think about this? How do we have conversations? It can't always happen on a mass scale. And we need to have tons and tons and tons of pockets of real intimate community where we are doing life together and asking the hard questions and praying together and figuring out what does faith in action look like here? What does this look like? A few weeks ago, some of you got to meet, we had a middle school pool party at our house, and the middle school students got to meet uh, a couple, a family that came into Austin for a few days named Doug and Jean Taylor and their kids. As many of you know, I was involved in a small group. Beth and I were in a small group for years in Atlanta before moving out here, and Doug and Jean were one of the couples in that small group, along with Steve and Cheryl Hayner, who I've mentioned before with you. Doug and Jean, uh, Doug just accepted a job at World Vision in Seattle, and they were driving out to Seattle and so stayed in Austin with us for a few days. And it was significant for us because they walked through one of the hardest questions that we've ever had to ask, which is that, I, Lord, I want to do your will, but it's really confusing what it is. I want to put my faith in action. I want to live out James, but I have no idea what this means. And that was the discernment of whether we were called to come here to Covenant and to come here to Austin. As people on the search committee know, and uh, they may have told you, it was not a quick, easy, or straightforward process. And this discernment, I don't think it should be when you're wrestling with questions like this. But it was really tough for us because Beth and I had uh, loved what we were doing in Atlanta. And then there was this church that came along and it's like, well, God, we want to be bold. We want to be willing to step out in faith. We want to care for community. We want to do what Rahab says. We want to work with, uh, with people in need here. It's not clear to us. And, and, the, and like as the weeks and months went by, we got tighter and tighter in knots on this. It didn't become clearer as we prayed about it and everything else. It was becoming more and more and more confusing. God, what do you want us to do? We wrestle with this, however, not just by ourselves. We wrestled with this in community, in our small group. And one of the most important moments came months into this process when Doug and Jean came over to our house one night and they were members of our church and they had been open from the beginning. It's like, we want to be clear. We don't want you to go. In fact, we're kind of uncomfortable talking about whether you should go or not because you're our pastor. But we kind of moved through all that. And Jean one night looked at us and said, I want you to know as we pray about this, it breaks my heart to say this, but I think God may be calling you to Austin. I think God may be calling you to covenant. And that was a huge turning point for us. It didn't make the decision, but it was this amazing thing to have community that knew us well enough to look at us and go, we want you to know this is what we see God may be calling you to do. You and I need to have a church that is going to push us on the Peter Fisher things, the obvious things we are supposed to be living out in our faith, helping the poor, stepping out in faith, reaching out to others in need. These are no-brainers of what we're supposed to do, but we also must be a place that values the times when it's not clear how you live that stuff out, and we must find ways of fostering the process of discernment, the process of asking questions, the process of praying together so that we can figure out what does God want you to do and what does it mean to live out our faith in action. My hope and dream is that we're a church that allows us and pushes us in the complexity of doing both so that we can step boldly forward into the future God has for us on all the different kind of things we're going to face. Let's pray.
Lord, we ask that you would compel us to step out in faith, but we also ask that you would help us to know who the community is to walk with, where our pockets of community can be. Some of us may have that, and I pray that we'd value it and continue to share life, but many of us don't. And as we journey into this new season of discipleship here, I pray that you would help us to take steps to find it to be willing to open up our calendar and our time to find some people to journey with, to take a step out and share and to reach out and form community so that we can have folks with whom we're doing life and in whom we can ask the really hard questions of faith and have a place where we can grow. We ask for this. Give us the boldness to seek that kind of community, all of us this day, this week, and always. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.